Hello, I'm Alec Wilkinson and this is Sailing Uncovered. Four great guests coming up over the next 30 minutes or so as we listen in on the great debate. To have a woman on your crew or not? Where do you stand? The Volvo Ocean Race have made their position clear. People have criticised us that, you know, it's a bit tokenism. It's absolutely not that. We want women represented in the race and that's why we've made the change. And the campaigning ladies at Magenta give us their views. I don't think it's so much sexism as just they're the people you know. And the girls don't tend to be on TP52s or RC44s in the professional circuit. Plus, how to save the planet and win the next Vendée Globe. We want to succeed in, in being the first boat to circumnavigate non-stop without any fossil fuels on board. Gender equality and saving the Earth. Yes, this episode has it all. One thing we don't have, though, as we'd hoped to, is record-breaking crew of Fado Cubed. Now, they won the Caribbean 600 last month and, to be fair, have probably broken a dozen speed records since breakfast today. But honestly, trying to get them to sit still long enough to do an interview has proved impossible. Uh, We tried, it went something like this. Welcome to the show. We're joined now by the Fado Cubed crew. How are you guys? Oh, there they go. Just sped off for another record attempt. We've given up for now, but maybe in future episodes we will hear from them. Uh, And by the way, one of the uh, Fado crew is Britain Rob Greenhouge, who has just been signed up by the Spanish Matt Frey team for the next Volvo Ocean Race. So, seven months from the start of the Volvo Ocean Race, let's get an update from the new race director, Phil Lawrence. I caught up with him at an event recently and started with, well, the obvious question. Please explain the new rules that are meant to help bring female sailors into the race. So what we've done, we've tweaked the rules to incentivise the teams to take female sailors with them. The reason we've done that is the Volvo 65 is a very physical boat, Um, It's got quite a constrained number of crew, Um, so there is a natural incentive or tendency for the teams to go for big, strong guys. The change we've made to the rule is that if you have an all-male crew, you can only have seven sailors on the boat. Um, And then it scales up. If you take female sailors, you can have one or two extra sailors, a crew of eight with one female sailor, a crew of nine with two female sailors. Um, If you have uh, five female sailors, you can have a crew of ten. And were there to be an entry like SCA last time that was all female, they can have 11. Um, So it's not compulsory, it's on a leg-by-leg basis. So we're just trying to give a little tweak to incentivize the teams to take women who who are a huge part of our sport onto the race. Is there also an element, a commercial element in this? Because, you know, Team SCA uh, did very well from that point of view. They're a marketing dream. Well, I, I think they were. They were a good marketing tool, but um, the race is commercial, um, and but it's across all you know, it's across all activities nowadays. You know, gender equality is, is a big subject. Um, some of the sponsors want to see gender equality on the boats or something close to it. So some people have criticised us that you know it's a bit tokenism. It's absolutely not that. We want women represented in the race, and that's why we've made the change. And how's it been taken? Uh, amongst the male sailors? Uh, there was a few that sort of took some time to get their heads around it, but I'd say we've got pretty wide, widespread acceptance now. In fact, we have got widespread accept, acceptance. And I'll be very disappointed if there are many boats in our race that don't take 
female sailors. So at this point, uh, we're some months away from the start. Um, how does it look as far as the take-up for women? Uh, well, we don't know. I mean, we're, we're, we've just started announcing the teams and, and there's a schedule of team announcements to come. They're still recruiting and training. Um, so I know quite a few of the top female sailors, Olympic gold medalists, uh, have been approached. Um, but I don't think anyone's settled on their crew yet, so it's too early to tell. And, and what is the schedule between now and October? Uh, well, for us as organisers of the race, we're very, very busy getting all the preparations in place. We've announced the route. Um, there's uh, 10 legs, 11 cities, so our team are going around to all of those cities to get all the arrangements in place, get all the permissions we need to do the activities on the water. Huge amount of planning. You know, route planning, you know, what are we going to do about the, the ice in the South Atlantic, um, in, in Antarctica. Um, so a tremendous amount of work going on at the moment. Our management team at any one week is you know, spread completely around the world. We've already done the routing modelling for the whole route. Um, clearly it's weather dependent, you know, um, so there is an average ETA in each stopover. Um, we've got a huge amount of contingency planning to do, so we have a road book for every leg, so that if there is an incident, you know, somebody's mast falls down, hopefully not, somewhere, you know, we can turn to that page in our road book and see what the recovery plan is. So a massive amount of work going on at the moment. Um, and, and what's the prediction? How many teams are you hoping to announce? Uh, well, we're building the eighth boat, so we're, we're hoping to have a full squad of eight teams on the start line. And when will we know the full complement of teams? I don't know the answer to that. Um, one of the things about the one design uh, is that you could can enter quite late because the boat's ready to go. Um, they're proven. You know, there's, there's not much bedding in to do, so you know, a, a top-flight team of sailors can probably get on the boat, do some training. There is quite a bit of pre-race activity we'll be doing, some of which we've announced already. Um, so uh, certainly, <coughs> I suspect it may well be towards uh, early summer before we know the full numbers. And finally. Um you're new to the race. Um, how how how's the job? How does it compare to the extreme series, which is what you used to do? Well, some of the principles are there: top-flight professional sailors, very commercial race, visiting ports all around the world. In fact, I've already run an event in every territory we're we're going to, um, so it's very similar in that way. But it's the scale: the scale of the Volvo Ocean Race is very very large. Uh, it's it's a massive race, forty-five thousand miles. Um, over eight months, uh, it, it, it's very big, um, a very big operation. You know, by the time we're up and running, there'll be a lot of staff working there. Um, very professional. Very professional. I've been massively impressed so far. Just after speaking to Phil, I managed to grab Annie Lush and Abby Eeler for their views on the race rules. Both competed in the last Volvo Ocean race with Team SCA and have since been part of setting up the Magenta Project, whose aim it is to promote women in sailing. Simple as that, really. Um, I was really surprised to hear that less than 3% of professional sailors are women. The Magenta Project came about following the successes of Team SCA in the Volvo Ocean Race and just the passion amongst the sailors um, and the realisation of how much support the project had um, gathered as the race went on. And it was just wanting to carry that momentum on to keep the opportunities open, not just for the crew that had competed in that race, but for other female fa sailors who were aspiring to do that race or to get into professional sailing in general. And that's really where it stemmed from. Yeah, because Annie, there was real disappointment when SCA decided not to do a second race. Um, and, and, and I suppose this gave everybody hope, and now it's doing something practical. 
Yeah, I think for any sponsor, sailing is difficult, and um, you know, companies have many things going on in them that you can't control. But the big feeling, as Abby said, after the race was we wanted to stay together. We felt like we'd achieved something, and that we felt like we really just started. So with the Magenta Project now, we're not we're looking at the Volvo Ocean Race, but we're looking at lots of other sailing events as well to really try and keep keep this sort of uh, momentum going forward. It's not just to help um, the top end, is it? It's certainly not just about the top end. I don't think we can expect something to change at the top if we don't see a cultural shift across the whole of our sport. Um, so we're looking at youth sailors trying to step up into professional sailing, but we're also looking at club level sailors. You know, I think it's really important that we see women out there and in dominant roles on boats. And that's got to happen across the whole sport. It can't just be at the top. And, and what is going on at the moment? Tell, tell me some of the work that the project's doing. We've been looking to get into any area that we can really with support um, and uh, some of the focus has been on, on clinics. This is getting younger sailors into high performance boats and really to give them the chance to sail foiling catamarans or um, you know, boats like we're going to be seeing in the America's Cup and in the big professional series in the future. Um, we've also been working with events, so working with the Women's International Kilboat event and Kilboat regattas in the UK predominantly, but also around the world to um, go and mentor and speak at those events and really encourage girls to sort of step up. Um, and we've also run a couple of events through yacht clubs and we're hoping to progress that more this year. And Abby, is it, is it a case of you guys just giving up masses of your time or are you managing to bring some funds in to make this you know, a viable, almost charity type project? Yeah, indeed. Um, we're definitely not fundraisers. We're, we're sailors predominantly and we've realised it is hard to source funds um, to, to, to be able to do what we want to do and, and run these clinics or run opportunities for girls in the sport. Um, what what we're finding is, yeah, we are using a lot of our time and um, it, it, we're all doing this voluntary, but it's it's really important to us and we are building the support and we're starting to build our network. But we've tried to be smart and to partner with existing events where we can make a difference, but at, at a little financial output to ourselves. Um, we're talking at, a, at an event at the moment, which is why there's this loud music. Do you find... Uh, that it's more difficult to be taken seriously by potential sponsors and big businesses because you're female sports people? No, I wouldn't say that's a gender issue. I think finding money across the board, regardless, is a hard task and it's only getting harder as companies are being smarter with their money and, and certain corporate hospitality rules have changed in, in recent years. So um, it's hard regardless but uh, the biggest thing is getting into companies at the right level and and that's been the hardest thing is getting the introductions and that's why we've needed to employ people or to, to seek help from those that are at that level in business that can get us in at the right level and have the right conversations. Um, Annie uh, what do you make of the new Volvo Ocean Race rules? I think it's fantastic to see an event step up and try to make a change I mean obviously the goal in the future would be that there doesn't need to be a rule. Um, you know, the teams would just look for the best sailors. But the fact that the Volvo Ocean Race are taking a positive step towards encouraging women into professional teams is brilliant. And we've also seen a change in the World Match Race Tour and, and their rules, and also now in the Extreme Sailing Series, which basically opens up for women to compete. So, uh, yeah, without events backing us, you know, there's only so far we can get. So it's fantastic. 
Um, the, the one thing I'm slightly confused about is if, if you talk about you know, um, female sailors coming through the Olympic programme, you know, the British sailing team is uh, financed to the tune of around £25 million, so there's plenty of money washing around. What, what are the Olympic female sailors struggling with? I think it's been interesting for us since we start up this project we have a lot of emails and that's not just from um, sort of uh, youth sailors it is sometimes from gold medalists and, and top Olympic sailors female sailors who are then struggling to step from the Olympics into professional sailing but why is that? Well I think um, a big part of it is you know, when you're an Olympic sailor, uh, you're racing girls. Or it has been until the NACRA got introduced. So um, I don't think it's so much sexism as just they're the people you know. And the girls don't tend to be on TP52s or RC44s in the professional circuits. So the guys take with them the guys they know and their friends and the guys they race. And we've been separated from them. So they're not taking us with them. Um, I think also there is this physical argument. And I think we're out to disprove that. For sure, there is a physical element to sailing, but we all know that's not everything in sailing and I think sometimes that's a bit of an excuse so um, although you've got to acknowledge in, in, in boats at the top end like the Volvo Ocean Race there is a, phys- a physical element and that's that's why they've introduced um, the, the rules uh, by which you get you get more crew if you have a female on board a Volvo Ocean Race boat no for sure I mean the, the bigger and stronger the better and um, the more high performance boats are now the, the more it's requiring us to be fit but um, if the rules are such that it's based on weight rather than number of people on board you just need to be more organised and more efficient about how you use more people to equal the same physical strength Okay so finally Abby what next for the project? We're targeting a number of events we're trying to focus on what's really going to make a difference at the professional level in particular the GC32 we would love to get more training events in that boat um, the Volvo, how that's going to unfold in the next six months, we want to try and target a clinic in the Volvo 65 boat, specifically for women to, to introduce perhaps those Olympic sailors or dinghy sailors who have never sailed on big boats before and and continue our work from last year where we worked with women's keelboat events, just promoting women in sailing in general and just to keep the profile of professional female athletes out there at the top of everyone's hit list. Good stuff, best of luck. Since talking to Abby and Annie, the first two women of the 2017 race have signed up. Both are with Dongfong Race Team. They're Caroline Brower of the Netherlands, who was part of Team SCA last time around, so a a, a former teammate and colleague of Abby and Annie's. And uh, the other one was France's Olympic sailor and NACRA 17 world champion, Marie Rieu, who will make her debut in the race. So maybe the rule change is already having an impact. Okay, let's stay offshore sailing now and welcome back to the show a man who was our very first guest on Sailing Uncovered back in the summer of 2016. But what a nine months or so it has been for Phil Sharp. Yeah, it's been incredible and it seems like a long time ago since I spoke to you uh, in Newport just after that um, that uh, fairly gruelling race across the Atlantic um, that I for some reason decided to do. Um, and uh, Transat Bakerley, which uh, you, you've, you ended on in a podium place, so it ended well. But goodness, it was a struggle, wasn't it, with um, broken sails and, and and penalty points and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, so the further I got across the Atlantic and the more damage uh, I accrued, the sort of exponentially slower I seemed to go. And uh, yeah, at some at one point I was just realising if I would ever get there before 
all my water and food supply ran out. But uh, but yeah, no, it was a, fortunately uh, a race that came good. Okay, well that that was the Transat Bakerley. If you want to hear um, all the details of that extraordinary race, episode one of Sailing Uncovered is is the place to go. But Phil, uh, let's look forwards now because you've got some pretty uh, big objectives for the next four years or so. Yeah, and that's right. And I think we've come a long way in the last year, but there's um, there's definitely a lot further to go with regards to my primary objective, and that's to to get to the Everest of sailing, the Vendée Globe, for the next edition in 2020. Uh, as as you, you probably know, I'm um, a guy that likes to uh, enter a race to, to try and win it. So um, there's uh, really um, four years now to put together a competitive project to do that. Uh, the Class 40 has been a really great experience. I think um, we can say that in, in terms of an open class boat, there's some really great similarities to the Open 60 class. And because um, last having... season, 2016 was your first full season in the in the class 40, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. And uh, and we were really lucky to get hold of a competitive boat just before the Transat, and uh, and then you know by the end of the season to be right up there at the front. Uh, and so this year, uh, after finishing third in the championship last year, we're very much um, looking to try and uh, to try and win the championship for for 2017. Uh, there's some there's some tough competition as always. There's a, a few new boats that are going to be introduced, uh, and uh, uh, I think it'll be exciting. I think that you know there's a, quite a few different races this year. We've got the Azores race uh, from Le Sable to Azores and back. Uh, so race I've the, never done. So from the west of France to the, to the Azores. When's that? Uh, that's in July. Uh, that's a double-handed race just for Class 40s, um, and then the big event of the year is the Transat Jacques Fab from Le Havre to uh, Salvador in Brazil and uh, and that's uh, yeah a race I'm really looking forward to actually and um, and there's a lot of uh, good opportunity for for practice for that particularly with double-handed races to to build up to uh, yeah ideally aim for a um, aim for a top result in in that race what I find interesting uh, about the plan is that you know you've said right the goal is Vendee the Vendee Globe 2020 uh, but there's four years before that and you've got lots of sort of stepping stones uh, on, on which to get there i guess um a lot of people uh, could say would, would say would set a target and then fail to get there because they haven't made the interim target so you know you you've got a very distinct path haven't you between now and, and entering the vendee yeah and um the vendee globe is a, is a very big commitment um and you know we're talking about uh, two and a half to three million uh, euro per annum budgets here uh, so it's uh, it's, a, it's a serious project and you know it's very difficult to just uh, jump straight in at the deep end into a competitive Amoka project straight away you've got to build up to it you've got to really I think uh, attract the sponsors with um, with a platform um, you know like the class 40 to to really give them the the satisfaction the enjoyment the return uh, and and yourself the the training and, and the confidence to to go all the way there and it takes time. It takes time, and um, and and four years might sound like a, a long time, but but really it, it flies by so quickly. But then again, the the Vendée does have huge exposure. It has massive resonance uh, in France, in particular. Everyone knows about the Vendée Globe uh, here, and um, its presence is growing throughout the world. Uh, so so you know it is a, it is a fantastic story, and it and it's just an incredibly simple concept of one man taking on the world nonstop. 
and and I think it will remain to be the the holy grail for sailing for quite a while. What's the difference though in in, in the actual sailing when when you move up from the forty to to the Emoka sixty? I think in terms of the spirit of um, solo offshore racing, it's it's actually very similar. Um, but I think technically the, the boats are probably more, um, you know, definitely more challenging and uh, the loads are definitely a lot higher on the boats. Uh, they're more complicated, uh, which means that it takes longer to, to really get to know how to maximize the, the parameters in your boat. Uh, and I think, um, you know, with, with everything being bigger, all the sails uh, being really twice the area, you, you have to plan ahead just that much more. You have to um, you have to be ready for maneuvers uh you know half an hour ahead of when they happen because that's how long maneuvers take on on a boat like that and you have to you know if it takes 20 minutes to tack you have to be very sure you want to you want to tack because <laughs> if you tack back then you just lose uh, a huge amount of time now phil you're actually in in la rochelle working on your boat which is why we can hear that a really annoying alarm is that a, a reversing lorry or something I uh, know it's actually a 150-ton travel lift that's just going past uh, the office window yeah. here. <laughs> I won't and, uh, ask you to go and stand in front of it and stop it then. <laughs> well, I'm hoping it will actually move away sometime soon. <laughs> well, they don't they don't move fast those things. No, um, no, it's moving at about two two miles, maybe three miles an hour, and um, unfortunately, it's just going back the other way now. So, is, does it actually have a huge ship or or yacht slung under it? Um, at, at the moment, it's completely empty, but um. When we lifted the Class 40, I'd, I'd never used such a big travel lift, and it looked like just a dinghy, um, basically uh, hovering up, up there somewhere in the sky when it lifted. It was, uh, it was so far from the ground, um, I actually found it quite unsettling. Uh, and I think they, you know, they, lift it, they, they basically lift ship, ships with this. But, but La Rochelle is, is an amazing place for, for, uh, for us to come. Um, it's got a huge amount of industry here in terms of race preparation. You can get things very quickly and efficiently. Um, obviously, you'll be doing the Vendée Globe solo, but you also sail with crew um, on certain campaigns. What do you prefer? I, I think for a, for a, a, someone to um, say that solo sailing's better um, or, or not would um, would probably be not be fair because I think it's great to have a mix. Um, I mean, I think. Uh, solo sailing is, is is definitely more rewarding from a from a personal angle, uh, and I think to have uh, you know accomplished the Atlantic uh, solo uh, like I did when I first got into offshore sailing in the Mini Transat class was just an, uh, a feeling of um, enormous satisfaction. Um, but but I think uh, on the other hand it is more fun sailing with other people on board. Uh, you've got someone to share the experience with. You can you can thrive and and, and push each other. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I think I think the experience of sailing with someone else is, is something I'd always look forward to more in a race. But but the solo sailing, um, the the challenge and the endeavour and uh, and really the uh, just the, the 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 amazing satisfaction on um, on 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 you know getting from start to finish of of an adventure uh, is uh, is probably um, yeah something something that definitely I find. Um, uh, what what drags me back to do races like the Transat so again? So if you could choose um, to sail with one person apart from your family or friends or another sailor, um, who would that be? Who who would you like to sail around the world with, and therefore spend however many uh, months it is on a small boat with? Well, I think I think the names that probably springs to mind is uh, is Ernest Shackleton. I mean, he was always a person that could really keep a, a positive spirit in times of extreme hardship um and 
And yeah, he, he was always a people's person. Uh, people found him a great pleasure to be with, uh, tracking into the most um, most uncertain and, and dangerous of um, of territories. Uh, and and I think to um, yeah to just try and learn some of his secrets and and have an insight into into what drives a person like that and, and how they can just stay positive um, and so motivated and and um, keep everyone focused on the, their objectives. I think would be um, yeah just um, a very interesting person to to have such an experience with. Okay, now you've got a, a really sort of interesting concept um, that you're introducing about sustainability and trying to be the first zero fossil fuel vessel to circumnavigate the globe, which presumably is your aim uh, for the Vendée 2020. How, how does that work? Um, well, simply we want to um, replace all the, the diesel engine on board uh, with um, quite actually quite advanced hydrogen technology and uh, this is hydrogen technology that can store renewable energy so it, it provides us the energy we need to um to have a practical means of um of propelling the boat in case of an emergency as required by by all racing rules and um it uh, is a system where we can um we can be as light as a conventional diesel engine and fuel um, and our reason really for doing this is twofold. Firstly, we want to succeed in, in being the first boat to circumnavigate nonstop without without any fossil fuels on board. So that's um, that's never been achieved. Um, and even in the the, the the recent Vendée Globe, all boats actually carried uh, emergency diesel on board. Uh, so so that's the the first um, objective is to succeed in that record. Secondly, we really want to provide a practical solution to um, um, to clean energy systems for the future of marine vessels. Um, so by by doing that, we want to demonstrate a system that um, that can work, can be adapted by uh, by by boats, uh, by all yachts and motorboats of of that sort of size, um, and to really accelerate a, a transition uh, to 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 renewable energy for the boating market. A lot of people, certainly outside sailing, anyway, you know, general sports fans, be surprised. Uh, to hear that sailing isn't a clean sport because the, the the image is you know it's just wind power yeah that's right and um but i think you know with the with these sailing classes we are really innovating right at the front and i think we um particularly with the open class boats need to need to uh innovate to provide uh practical means that can be adopted by the uh, rest of the industry and i'm not talking about just sailing boats here but also motorboats um, and and in fact, you know, when you're you know when you're sitting in Anchorage uh, next to a, a motorboat running their generator just so they can power their air conditioning, um, and you get a waft of smoke uh, drifting your way, you actually do realise just how how unfriendly the marine industry can be, and it is in fact a long way behind automotive in terms of emissions. Um, but providing a scalable solution and, and demonstrating that in smaller boats. Um, successfully uh, could mean it, that it could be adopted by by ships in the future uh, certainly something that is a, a huge contributor to global emissions uh, and uh, and yeah I think with um, with an innovative project where you can uh, access the technology um, some really advanced clean technology demonstrate it successfully could be a real uh, trigger for for the industry to to, to get behind uh, and to to scale up 
in order to really make a, a difference. It's a great plan. Um, how, how have you put it and how are you putting it in, into practice? Because you need a lot of expertise there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've teamed up with some, some technology specialists in the hydrogen fuel cell industry uh, and also the solar industry. So we're working with um, yeah some leading specialists on that. Uh, in fact, we're going to be putting some of the latest efficiency solar onto the boat in about a month's time uh, before our first race of the season. Uh, so we're going to be announcing that partnership very shortly, which is very exciting. Uh, and then, um, yeah, on the hydrogen side, uh, that is uh, something that's uh, been in development um, over the last year, year and a half. Um, and uh, and that's something we're, we're now quite advanced on. So really, we have all, all the bits and pieces. Uh, we just need to uh, put it in a boat and and then um, and test it and and try and make, make a success out of it. Is it easy enough? Are you able to explain how these hydrogen cells work to non-engineers in a sentence? So hydrogen is hydrogen really is your fuel and your fuel cell is your engine, but it's a chemical reaction. So there's no moving parts. And it's basically like um, it's, it's put it, putting hydrogen in, reacting it with oxygen in the air uh, and and you create water out of it. Uh, but during that chemical reaction, you you actually release energy. So fuel cells are around 60% efficient, and uh, they they are actually lighter than diesels. Uh, they, the fuel cells themselves are really compact. They're amazing bits of kit. Uh, so you know, hydrogen, as you know, is a very light gas as well. Uh, you have to store it though in in uh, composite cylinders, uh, and that um, you know it takes up a little bit more room than than a than a diesel fuel tank. But um, the overall system we're looking at is is going to be just as light as a a diesel system. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, as I said, there, there are no moving, moving parts whatsoever in the fuel cell. So in theory, it's more reliable than a diesel system once it's all set up. Um, the problem is, is, um, accessing the hydrogen. Uh, so it's the infrastructure really that's holding the whole fuel cell market up. Transporting hydrogen to a boat is, is not, um, a simple task. Uh, so, so we're planning to um, make the hydrogen on site um, to get around this logistical problem, uh, and and we do that with a small electrolyzer and compressor, uh, and and with that um, we're able to to actually produce hydrogen, green hydrogen, on site from renewable energy. I guess there's also an issue with having to convince the race authorities that it, it is an acceptable way of propelling your boat in an emergency, because that is one of the standard rules of the Vendée Globe and other offshore races. It's surprising, actually, how open they are to considering future energy technologies. So the Marco class uh, would, allows currently for, for hydrogen technology, for fuel cells on board. Um, and, um, and I think the Class 40 is, is shifting that way as well. And I think, yeah, I think they realise that really diesels are just um, not at all compatible with with renewable technology that's coming through. And and, you know, we need a more integrated system that that can can store large amounts of clean energy on board uh, in order to make, um, you know, a a craft that can be totally energy independent. Okay, Phil. So just finally, um, what's your next big challenge? Well, first major challenge is to get the boat ready in time for the first race of the season. Uh, and that's uh, the Grand Prix Goyada in Douarnenez, which is um, a pretty, pretty amazing multi-class event in, in West Brittany. Uh, it's, in, it's, in, it's in southwest Brittany, small fishing port of Douarnenez, but one of France's biggest regattas. 
Uh, and then we've got the race to the Azores and back, uh, followed by the Fastnet. Predictions so, for the Fastnet? Uh, firstly, there's going to be a lot of Class 40s. I think there might be about 40 boats, which would be one of the biggest fleets the Class 40s have ever seen. Last time I went into the Fastnet with a Class 40, I came third. So hopefully I'm... I'm looking to do better than that. And the Fastnet gets underway on August the 6th from the Isle of Wight in the English Channel. Mm, I feel a preview might be called for. Best of luck, Phil. Thanks for joining us. And that is Sailing Uncovered for this month. We have loads of stuff coming your way over the summer, uh, including Dame Ellen MacArthur launching the start of her new Round Britain Challenge. We'll be in Bermuda. Yeah! For the America's Cup, and there'll also be a special Volvo Ocean Race preview. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get all the episodes automatically. And remember, we'll be tweeting and Facebooking additional material as well. That's it. Hope you've enjoyed it. From me, Alec Wilkinson, it's bye for now. <laughs>